0: He gives the kind of classic d- definition of what a correct regime is, a good, a good political administration is, and a deficient or deviant regime, one that sort of peels off from what it should be aiming at and, and lands in somewhere uh, improper. And the, the distinguishing mark is whether the ruling class pursues the advantages of the community as a whole.
1: Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. Here's another episode. We are recording on location in the free state of Florida at the National Conservatism Conference with someone I've corresponded with mostly over Twitter, but in spite of that, it's been good correspondence (laughs) over the years, we just met in person, Pavlos Papadopoulos, who's at Wyoming Catholic College, an institution I once served as president. We we missed one another there, but uh, kindred spirits in terms of what our interests are and what we're going to talk about today. But, Pavlos, most of all, thanks for taking some time to sit with me.
0: Thank you. It's great to meet you and great to be here.
1: Thank you. So tell us, in case someone doesn't know, what your interests are in this conference but also in America.
0: Sure thing. Um, My interest in this conference and in America are both, I guess, academic and political or citizenly. Um, I study political philosophy, and that's one of the topics that I teach at Wyoming Catholic. Uh, my graduate degree was in political philosophy from University of Dallas. And so I'm interested in thinking about politics kind of in a theoretical level, uh, but you know the greatest political philosophers that I study and I enjoy teaching teach us that we're naturally political. That politics is not just something we can um, talk about, think about, hold at arm's length, but that our own reflections about politics actually call us to act as responsible members of the political community that we're we're born into or, f- or find ourselves members of. Uh, and so, really, I see this kind of conference as a great convergence of my my interests. Namely, uh, I get to talk with others about political philosophy. Um, there have been some really great panels here, especially on sort of Catholic political thought and Protestant political thought, uh, so thinking about the re- intersection of religion with our political uh, philosophies and political concerns. But also, it's it's not merely academic, it is ordered towards, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's reflective thought ordered towards action, and that's appropriate to the discipline of political philosophy because the tradition, Aristotle, Aquinas, and so on, would say that politics, the study of politics, is the study of a practical science. Uh, Something like mathematics or physics properly understood is a speculative science. The goal of those disciplines is just for the mind to apprehend the truth. And there's something beautiful and good about that. And that's a kind of fulfillment of human nature is just seeing the truth, uh, whether that's a a natural truth or a divine truth like in theology. But there are other disciplines, ethics, politics, economics. Uh, These disciplines don't find their end merely in seeing what it's good. Aristotle says the point of studying virtue is to become virtuous, not just to sort of talk about what virtue is for days on end. That might be relevant to becoming virtuous, actually, but the point is that um, you don't really reach your completion until you start to act and act in a way consistent with what reason has brought you to see. So as a political philosophy um, scholar and teacher, I see it as just part of an extension of my academic vocation to care about and to try to bring to bear... Uh, the reflections that I'm privileged to be paid to to make on a daily basis, um, on 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 real life, uh, there there isn't a strict uh, divide between what I'm doing in the classroom when I'm teaching Plutarch or Cicero or Aristotle and what I'm doing here. It's just different different particulars, and and it really quite matters because this is my country. I love it, and I want to serve it in the way that I can.
1: There's a timelessness in that understanding, right? And yet there's also a timeliness. By that I mean thinking about what we've been talking about at this conference leading governor in the United States, leading senators in the United States, obviously a lot of people who are academics like you, but the, the timeliness is that it seems as if the very idea of America is under assault. And and I wonder if you would speak to that, given that that wonderful understanding you have of both the academic side as well as the political side, the latter something that probably a lot of our audience spent some time thinking about.
0: Yeah, I want to... Um in a friendly way, take issue with the way that you framed that a little bit. Oh, you can...
1: You, well, <laughs> be friendly, but you can take issue with whatever you want to do. Which is to yeah. say,
0: I, I, would, I would say that... Uh, there's a way in which America is under an assault because we have come to think about it primarily as an idea. Okay. Because we've fallen into that era. I, so there's a, there's a lot that can be packed into that. All statement. right, professor, I'm, teach I'm, <laughs> me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, this is very commonsensical, right? Sure. America isn't an idea. It's a country. Yeah. Uh, it's a nation. I mean, whatever term you want to use is a nation state, you know, something like that. It's a political community. Which of, by the way, I of, agree of, with. Of you. course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, of course, we can also in a certain way speak of America as an idea, just as we speak of Athens as an idea or Russia or France as an idea. But that's not really the primary phenomenon that we're pointing to when we right. when we use those proper names of America or these other countries. Uh, and so, yeah, America is under attack because we have oftentimes for good intentions and in different ways on the right and the left or different sectors of the right Um, fallen into the habit of thinking of it as an idea, as opposed to a concrete political community um, in a specific place, uh, populated by specific peoples, with specific traditions, and with specific interests. Uh, So I'm I'm teaching this semester Aristotle's Politics, and he gives the kind of classic definition of what a correct regime is, a a good political administration is, and a deficient or deviant regime, one that sort of peels off from what it should be aiming at and, and lands in somewhere uh, improper. And the, the distinguishing mark is whether the ruling class pursues the advantages of the community as a whole. And for Aristotle, I think this is absolutely right. The, alter, the, the, the two choices are either the people with power pursue the interests of the community as a whole, whole political community, whole population, everyone who's a member of that body, or they pursue their own interest there isn't a third option we tend to think of there being a third option we tend to hear a phrase like America first and think that's you know among its other sins that's that's selfish or something like that and so we would like instead to dedicate ourselves to you know the good of humanity or the global good or something like that and I think Aristotle would just cut through that and say no you're either pursuing the interest of the few or the interest of the whole um, and in this case, the few being the ruling class. If you have an oligarchy, if you have a small number of people ruling a country, if they're going to if they're going to pursue their own class interests, them and themselves, uh, their friends, their family, the people that they favor, that's an oligarchy. That's a deficient regime. If you have a few people, they could also be pursuing the common good, the good of the nation or city or country as a whole. And then we'd call that an aristocracy. We'd use a positive name instead of a negative. So uh, this is a roundabout way of saying, I think that when we speak of America as an idea, we enable... A, intentionally or unintentionally I think often unintentionally and, and with the best intentions we enable America the the actual nation to be attacked or to be preyed upon by our ruling class oftentimes in the name of the greatest the greatest causes um, and so I think it's quite important to restore our memory a sort of common sense understanding that well America is first and foremost a country with people uh, Who to whom their rulers have an obligation, as a shepherd has an obligation to his to his flock. You're either you're either pursuing the good of your flock, or you're sort of letting the wolves take (laughs) take one one sheep or another at at a different period of
1: time. So, am I mistaken, or am I overstating it when I say that American education writ large, K twelve, higher ed, obviously your your wonderful institution, one of the exceptions, is just. Deficient when it comes to preparing Americans for the understanding you just articulated so well.
0: I think so. Um, so, what do we do to change it? So, I, I attend K twelve schools in Massachusetts. Don't hold it against me. Well, <laughs> I escaped unscathed. I escaped scathed. Not going to uh, hold it against you. So, so which is to say, I have an understanding, a personal understanding. I, I, I don't just rail against public schools for no reason, but because. I reflected upon that experience and saw how deficient it was personally. I've since been in private education in this sort of small subculture of uh, great book schools, some of them secular, some of them now uh, religious Catholic. My, my view is this, and again, going back to the classics like Aristotle, in, in the best kind of republic, we actually would have a public school system that, that served the common good, that was ordered to um, human flourishing in a sort of private sense as well as a public sense. Um, prepare people, you know, not undercut their faith in God, not undercut their connections to their family, not undercut their connections to these other natural communities like, like the nation that they belong to. Uh, I think in the best well-ordered republic, we would also have plenty of opportunity to you know, homeschool, religious school, whatever you want. You wouldn't be forced into public schools, but families should be able to look to the public schools as somewhere they can send their children and expect that they will be uh, well-formed and well-prepared not only for the economy, but for a happy life, a flourishing life. All of that's to say, I, I would like to aim eventually at a reform of the public school system, but that's, that's the work of generations. <laughs> in the In the meantime, so in the meantime, at least as a means to an end, I'm in favor of you know, deregulation of education, um, massively expanding school choice. Again, not so much as an end in itself. Uh, it, in my ideal republic, we would actually have some school choice, but I don't want to just abolish the public school system or something like that. That said, I, I, I'm trying to be as realistic as possible about the steps that need to be taken to the reform of the public school system, which probably means, you know, metaphorically burning down the education school establishment. metaphorically. Metaphorically. (laughs) And so, you know, interim steps would be states taking it upon themselves to change teacher licensure uh, requirements, right? You need, you know, emphasize, you need a BA in a specific discipline, not you need an ed degree. I think that would be good. Just weaken the ed school's grip on, on teachers. Um, so, I, I, again, you can point to like, teachers' unions for bad actions in particular cases. I don't think that's the root of the problem. I think the root of the problem is actually the credentialing system and the ed schools and the ideology that comes from the ed schools. It's the graduate programs in education that are the, the, the kind of source of the problem. Uh, so uh, there's something analogous to be said at, at the level of higher, of higher education. You know, I teach at a private Catholic school. I went to a private Catholic university for my PhD. I went to a private secular school um, for, my, for my BA, uh, but I don't want to just say, you know, the, the only good schools are private schools. I would like the state universities. Uh, we really do need to, to aspire
1: begin. to that. Sorry we for did. the interjection. No, it's absolutely. really important as Americans. And
0: it's, you know. know, again, being real, realistic, it's not two years away. It's not five years away. It's probably a generation or two away. But look, living in Wyoming and starting to pay attention uh, to local politics, it's just it, it shocks me. It's It's amazing how complacent conservatives are about having blue universities in red states. Uh, S- uh, Cynthia Lummis, um, the senator, um, one of the senators from Wyoming, gave a commencement address this past spring at University of Wyoming. I mean, Wyoming is like plus 40 for Trump. Or so. it's, it's insane. Like we, like Democrats are about to go extinct as a major party because so many of them, you know, enough of them flipped over to try to vote for the crossover vote for Liz Cheney. Didn't help her very much at all. Uh, but the Democratic Party is about to be extinguished as a major party. as one of the two major parties because it just doesn't have enough of a percentage. And yet, University of Wyoming she mentioned at some point, not in a very confrontational way, but she mentioned that there were two genders and she got booed at the commencement address at University of Wyoming. I mean, maybe you know, expect that at UMass or something like that um, or SUNY something, you know, some, some state but university. But not in Laramie, Wyoming. Not in Laramie, Wyoming. And yet we, you look at the election maps and you go to a college town in any state, including red states, and it's a blue dot. We should not be complacent about that. And state legislators can actually use their power of supervision of their state universities um, somehow to change that, right? And so I, I know it's it's a systemic problem. It's actually the the interstate and really national and really international system of the modern research university, which is has become so thoroughly left wing uh, that at least in, in in certain sort of cultural leftism, um, to some extent, economic leftism as well. Um, that, 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 that's the problem. But red states should really understand themselves as having a specific responsibility to their citizens and to orienting their public institutions, including state universities and the public school systems towards the goods perceived by their people.
1: And the, I mean, I happen to agree 100% with your diagnosis. It, it reminds me of, of a number of things, but probably the most important is thinking about policy. I'm often asked by people around the country, no doubt mutual friends of ours, what Kevin, what's the policy solution? Is it that we build new institutions like Wyoming Catholic, others, Hillsdale, etc., or is it that we really lean into Increasing accountability of these public institutions, and my answer has always been both. We've yes. got to have both, <laughs> yeah, right?
0: Yeah. The answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, and
1: and 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 they're both long term. I mean, you you know, from being a professor at what is still a relatively new institution of higher learning, the hard work that goes into starting these schools, and and but we need people to be inspired to do that in the same way we need elected officials. To have the political courage to say, I'm going to stand up against my alma mater, a public university, (laughs) not because I'm opposed to the concept of public education, but because the American public deserve better, especially in my
0: state. Yeah. Yeah. Divestment from (laughs) your corrupt left wing (laughs) alma mater uh, is a very good idea. Yeah. Um, And again, I, I, I mean. I I think this is really a both and and you can I can I could say both and about a sort of slightly broader um, uh, question as well, which is, you know, do we uh, do we retreat from the public sphere because it is so corrupt or do we throw ourselves wholeheartedly into the into the fight at the political level? Look, I I think it's both and I mean, I I think uh, at its best, an institution like my my own or others that are not sort of directly plugged into the political fray that are a little bit off off the beaten path, um, they're doing good work because they are giving their students the space to breathe to withdraw for a certain period of time so that they're well-formed. And then those students, you know, to use some Catholic language, they discern their vocation. And some of them discern to become monks. Some of them discern to become mothers who stay at home or who work part-time. Some of them discern to be um, businessmen. Some of them discern to be really politically active. And you know, we're each called um, in our own way to service, to service to others. And those are all legitimate and, and necessary and good ways of serving. So I don't see a great conflict between um, you know, choose. You know, either choosing. Do we build new institutions, or do we try to reform uh, existing ones? A, a given person's decision might take them in one direction or another. But we need a full court press um, on, you know, reforming, or in, which might include tearing down in some cases our, our corrupt public institutions and building up alternatives. Uh, we don't actually know. What, what difference any given effort is going to make. So you, I don't want to get stuck in kind of a head game of do I do A or B and I have to choose between them. You do have to choose, uh, but you should collaborate with the people who are, who are making a different choice and, and all try to work towards the same good purpose and you know, go where your vocation takes you and your talents take you. And that might be in the public sphere, that might be in the private sphere, that might be in uh, home life, or that might be in a religious vocation. It, uh, there's a lot of different uh, good ways to serve God and to see, serve your country and your family and your community. Given how thoughtful you are, and, and, and I mean that genuinely, Pavlos, I, I want to ask
1: you the last couple of questions, sort of next step questions, sure. because I'm sure people watching or listening to this are taken as, as I am sitting next to you by the depth of your thought. And so we, we do, uh, that's, that's genuine, uh, so congratulations on that. The, we need more of that in the American public square. But it's actually, the, the question dovetails with that comment, and it is, we do a lot of worst case scenario thinking as Americans and as conservatives. And while some of that, I'm afraid, actually is an accurate reading of reality, I think people of faith, whatever that faith may be, have a certain orientation toward joy real joy. Yes. And so what's the best case scenario thinking for America this year, five years, 10 years down the road, maybe beyond.
0: Yeah. I'll just, I'll just pile onto what you said by reminding everyone that despair is a sin, right? So, so you don't, you don't necessarily blame the sinner every time they fall into every sin, right? Yeah, you empathize with people who experience disa- despair, but we're called to joy. We're called to sort of affirm the world that God has given us in the time that we're born into. However difficult it is. There are trials in, in every time, uh, best case scenario. I don't want to make electoral predictions or something like no, that. Nor do I. Um, so, what do we do I mean we we take advantage of the crisis that has become so abundantly clear in different ways in the last two years and the last twenty years, right? Um, right now we're experiencing a crisis of legitimacy at so many levels of public life uh, in in our country, and I think the best case scenario for that is uh, to do what I've seen a lot of people in my in my county doing, which is. Get angry, but then not just post online about it, but throw themselves into public service. Um, there's a woman a few years older than me, uh, you know, in her mid to late 30s in in my county, who started a citizen group um, last last fall because she was worried about vaccine mandates coming down and taking away her job. She was a she was a nurse, and and she had friends who were teachers, and and being forced to choose between getting a vaccine they didn't agree with and uh, losing their job um, or taking their school, kids out of school and so on. So whatever your specific views on, on vaccines, the, there was a great local opposition to vaccine mandates. Um, and that turned into a political organization um, you know, adjacent to the Republican Party, not, not a member of it, but trying to pressure, like the Tea Party did a few years ago, trying to pressure the Republican Party to actually pursue the interests of, uh, of the people that it's supposed to serve. She's now running for state legislature and she got the GOP nomination in a, in a local district. This is a woman who, you know, two years ago would never have thought about going into public service. And there's a lot of people like that locally in a very small locality. Um, throwing yourself into public service and getting involved is, is an amazing uh, way of responding to that call uh, for some. And so I, I guess what I'd say is it's, it's been a wake up call the last two years in terms of public health the last six or seven years in terms of sort of cultural issues or 10 years in terms of cultural issues. Uh, I think the last 20 years in terms of what the military industrial complex has done and has become and how it's metastasized in this really dangerous way into the security state and, and, and working together with the Democratic Party. I think we need to take advantage of that crisis and say, hey, we used to have this thing. And to some extent, we still do have this thing called Republican self-government. It's in crisis, We need, if we would like to, if we would like to preserve it where it still exists, or if we if we'd like to roll back the threat to it in the administrative state, the national security state, and and uh, related organizations, uh, you know, the time to act is now. The time to vote correctly is now. The time to pressure uh, our elected officials or get get better ones in is now. Um, So I'm optimistic about the. obviousness, (laughs) I suppose, at least apparent to me, the apparent obviousness of the crisis, because it does serve as a wake-up call to so many of my fellow citizens who are interested in throwing themselves into public service. Uh, I'm also cheered, let me just switch tacks for a moment, I'm cheered by institutions like my own, Wyoming Catholic, and analogous institutions at the primary and secondary level, the charter school movement. I mean, charter school movement is an amazing example. A a friend of mine uh, once observed, the charter school movement is is exhibit A of how the Americans, or the American people, still have what Tocqueville described described as the art, the art of associating. We create our own associations that we make. I mean, we just we just come up with stuff. We don't wait for the central planner to come and, and fix the problem. We we're the get it done, <laughs> get her done. You know, Cajun Navy is another great it local is. example. It's a wonderful of this, example of that. Uh, in a different sphere. But we say, hey, these 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 schools are not working out for us. Uh, we want to make our own, and so we build our own. Uh, And the charter school movement has become a national movement with with some interaction, increasing interaction with institutions like Hillsdale, University of Dallas and others um, sort of the university level. But it's really come as a as a grassroots uh, upswelling. And that's that is so crucial. I mean, again, maybe it's just because I'm in education, but uh, educating the next generation uh, for the life well lived, for for liberty, for true liberty, the the truth that will set you free and for a good, good citizenship. Uh, that's only going to come through uh, an educational movement, I, I think, or the best way for that to spread through the public is through an educational movement. And so I'm I'm uh, not optimistic, but hopeful that, you know, in the long term, the battle will be won. Uh, and the way to reclaim the public square and to reclaim our country will be through this full court press, whether it's going directly into public service, whether it's, it's building schools, or even just homeschool associations in your area. Um, people have realized with horror how bad things have become. And so we're finally, you know, the scales are dropping from conservatives' eyes and Republicans' eyes, and, and this is a time to, to look the danger straight in the face and just have courage—not despair, but have courage—and say, "I'm going to be joyful in the fight, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to I'm going to take it on in the way that I'm called to take it on."
1: And take one step, and then another step, and exactly. Then another just step. One
0: foot in front of the in front of the next.
1: And I, I love the reminder about the art of associating. And so, and I'm tempted to ask the last question about that, but really what I try to do with the last question is usually ask our guests why they're joyful, why they woke up that way today. I have a pretty good idea of how you would answer that. So I'm going to ask a different question on behalf of a lot of parents and grandparents that I hear from as I travel the country, waving the heritage banner. And it is this, they say, Kevin, speaking about themselves, especially if they're in my generation it seems as if I and my children were deprived of a really sound education. You have you, you teach it at an institution that is very much connected to our, our intellectual tradition. Are there, for a general audience, a couple of books, a couple of news outlets that are thoughtful, that really inform your thinking, or that you would say as a parent yourself would be really good for Americans to read if in fact they f- have forgotten about it or where they went to school. It was not part of the curriculum.
0: Sure. Yeah. Let me preface this by saying that I, I didn't get a classical education up, up to 12th grade. Right. I, I was K-12 public schools. There's a decent public school in Massachusetts by, you know, Massachusetts standards of what that means. No moral formation, no reference for your country. Right. But, you know, there, there weren't like knife fights in the halls and you know things like that. Uh, so I stumbled really fortuitously or providentially upon this great book school, St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Um, I just found promotional material of theirs. I heard, hey, they don't give tests and they just read it's books and talk about life. them. So yeah, I don't want to take a test for the rest of my life. So I, so I went there and it, was, it turned out to be this really rigorous immersion in in the Western tradition uh, through the great books. And so all that is to say, you know, there, there are folks who are old, older than me who, who, who I know who, who didn't have this kind of classical education, good formation, and in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, discover it and dedicate some time to it Uh, and benefit greatly from it. So the first thing to say is don't despair if you haven't, you know, been formed in the cradle by the the great books. There's still time. There's still time. There's still always time. Um, And, you know, you look at just particular examples of, of great men from history like Cicero who somehow managed to be this amazingly active statesman while his republic is declining, and yet is reading and writing philosophy on the side. Right? He's an extraordinary individual, so we're not all Cicero, but it is possible to, to dedicate yourself to this in, in some way in the way that's appropriate to you. Uh, l- let me say something about particular institutions before talking about particular texts. Um, there's a whole network, um, several of the schools that I've, I've been involved in, St. John's College, University of Dallas, and then Wyoming Catholic College, um, that really welcome and embrace Um, outsiders who want to get to glean something from sort of their core mission Uh, and so a lot of these institutions and and there are many others that I just don't have a personal connection to uh, will have outreach programs. Um, My own college, Wyoming Catholic, we do a pretty regular podcast where you can get, you know, very snappy 15 minutes interview with a professor about something they're teaching or something that they're a specialist in. You know, go listen to that and and that might pique your interest and, and you sort of listen to a few good episodes. Series. It's a great series. And and one of the nice things about it is that they're almost always talking about books that they're reading or teaching that you could just pick up and read. If, you know, I can't, I can't prescribe to a general audience what you should go read um, that will fit everyone. But go sample a few of those episodes and, and you'll see and you know other institutions have have similar endeavors uh, there's a there's a number of um so there's a, an institution i know from a, a tutor at st john's uh called the catherine project um and what this tutor um does is she runs these totally free discussion groups that anyone can sort of sign up for uh, and, and it's just an online discussion group and they have, you know, a dozen or two dozen every every fall, every spring, every summer that you can sign up for. You can do Euclid uh, for a few months if that's what you're interested in. You could do Aristotle, you could read Sophocles, you could read the scriptures. Um, there's another institution that I'm, I'm involved in uh, called the Albertus Magnus Institute, which is run out of California. Really great guy. John Johnson runs it. Uh, and it is a entirely free online classical education program for anyone. And so, uh, anyone who's been to a sort of set of uh, great books, many of them Catholic schools, is automatically what he calls a fellow, but you can also just apply you know, for free, very very brief application, just fill out a form online to be a fellow, and then you're enrolled and you can take classes for free. They never charge anything, they accept don- donations, but um, I taught- What a tremendous model. It is, it's amazing, I mean, his idea is like, look, higher education is in decline, it's crashing and burning, let's try to save the great books in the Catholic tradition In the, in this case, uh, and make it available to anyone who's interested. So I taught uh, a class for them this summer on Tocqueville's Democracy in America, and it was a wonderful cross section of you know recent liberal arts Catholic um, college graduates, and you know folks in their 40s and 50s who are accountants or lawyers or, or whatever, or stay-at-home moms in their in their uh, during the day, but who just wanted a kind of intellectual stimulation. So those projects are out there. You know, 50 years ago, it was Mortimer Adler's Great Books of the Western World. Uh, Series and you had discussion groups around the country. I don't think those are as much a thing anymore, though there's there's some kind of online program that's similar to that 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 I'm not very familiar with. But there are analogs to that out there. Um, And so uh, if we talk about particular books, I'll just mention a couple of my favorites. Um, Aristotle's Ethics, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, one of my favorite texts to read. I mean, not everyone's cup of tea, but it's about... The way he begins is this should be of interest to everyone. Um, everyone's interested in happiness. Uh, everyone's interested in, in the good life. And so we have to figure out what happiness is. And he gives a wonderful analysis. This is what happiness is. If you want to be happy as a human being, you need to be virtuous. Let's figure out what virtue is. And he just takes you through. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's heady stuff. It's dense reading. It's, it's not something you just pick up like a magazine, uh, but it's the kind of work that can actually change your life. I know, I know that it did for me. Um, so that's the kind of work that I, at least I would gravitate towards towards reading with others. A lot of people will be more interested in in story, which is very good in literature. And so if you don't have a classical education, if you don't have this background already, I'd say go to the beginning, you know, read scripture and read Homer, read Read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, everyone go starts there, everyone starts there and they do so for a reason because it's, even though it's talking about these guys, you know, in the bronze age, you know, thousands of years ago on the yeah. battlefield, you're, you're not going to be in that situation probably. Uh, there's something appealing because there's something eternal there. There's something perennial there in the struggle between Achilles and Agamemnon, the desire of Achilles to be immortal, and yet he's born as immortal. I mean, this speaks to everyone through through the millennia. It's not just that this book came first and, you know, a bunch of people picked it and said it was important. It resonated with every generation that received it. And so it still resonates with people today. I'd say begin at the beginning and then see where that takes you. Thanks for that response.
1: Well, Pablo, thanks for your time. It's a, it's a busy schedule. You're an important part of, of this conference and really appreciate sitting down with you.
0: Thank you. Great to talk to you.
1: You bet. Well, thanks for joining this episode of the Kevin Roberts Show. We will be back with another episode talking about some joyfulness and the reason for that for America. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.